to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hey everyone, uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today we have Kurt Sparkle with us, uh, who is a longtime Blizzard uh, a <laughs> veteran and uh, recently joined Amazon Games working on a mobile game, it looks like. So I'm, I'm super excited to just like dwell into the world of, of game design, which is probably one of my favorite things to talk about. But, uh, you know, Kurt, before we do that, I always like to ask, how'd you get into games? Like, you know, how, how'd you end up uh, having your dream job, so to speak? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I didn't know it was my dream job, uh, you know, for a really <laughs> long time. I, um, so I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. So, you know, I grew up playing NES and Sega yeah. and uh, PlayStation and all that, all that good stuff. And um, I think I started getting into game development um, with mods, actually, um, as a, as a mm -hmm. teenager, I was making like levels in Doom and uh, <laughs> Half-Life and, you know, that kind of rolled into like Elder Scrolls mods and, and all sorts of really fun stuff. Um, and that was really just a hobby for a long time. Um, I never really thought about actually going in, uh, into it as a career. It was just something that I loved to do. I, I loved games. Um, and then there was this side of it, um, you know, in terms of like level design and, and, and mods that, you know, I liked even more than playing games. Um, and it wasn't until uh, I would say that I was in college that I really started thinking about, hey, there's there's actually people who make these these games <laughs> uh, and it's their job. And wouldn't it be cool to to get a chance to do that? So um, I really kind of came into it from the the, the modding side of things, uh, growing up. That's super cool. Um, cool. And then when you got a job at Blizzard, you kind of started in QA and then kind of worked your way up to a game designer, right? Yeah, it was actually, um, it was really difficult. Uh, it still is, it can, it can, it can still be very difficult to get a job, um, at a triple A, uh, studio, uh, in the industry. And so, um, after I finished college, um, I applied to um, dozens of, of game game developers um, to try and get like any job that I could in design <laughs> or production. I was applying to everything under the sun, um, and I, I I didn't really get a lot of calls back. Um, actually, you know, even with like my 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 portfolio of mods and my my degree. Um, there weren't a lot of callbacks, but I, I did have one callback from a, a studio that was making um, motion controller Wii games uh, <laughs> for Nintendo at the time. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. They did a oh, they did just finished doing a game with Steven Spielberg. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it was called. If anybody, if anybody who listens to this can uh, poke me online and, and remind me what the game is called, <laughs> if you know, uh, please please do. But um, they were hiring for uh, an associate game designer at the time. And, um, you know, they gave me an interview and like five minutes into the, to the interview, they told me uh, that I, I still don't have enough experience to, to oh, get the no. job. But um, the, the design manager was kind enough to um, spend the rest of the hour for the phone call, like basically coaching me on, on how to get into the industry. And so um, there was a brand new tool called Unity. Uh, mm -hmm. that had just come out back then. <laughs> <laughs> this is how, how ancient I am. Um, 
and so he was telling me all about Unity and um, how it's you know it's it's free um, to to start using, and I I should really um, you know learn that tool. And he talked about QA as a pathway into game design, and so he really gave me um, you know just a lot of um, information that at the time wasn't very readily available. And so um, I started expanding my search, um, applying to um, QA jobs as well, and. Um, within a few months, I had landed a, a QA position over at Blizzard. That's amazing. That's amazing. I love it. Um, cool. So I'm curious, you know, before we really delve into it, um, you know, is there anything that you learned as a QAer that like made you a better game designer or like you wish other game designers like had a framework or a way of thinking about things that you learned kind of from that time as a QA analyst? Yeah, um, wow, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, QA teaches you a lot of things. Uh, one of the things that's helped me most uh, when, you know, transitioning into design uh, was that you, you kind of learn how to, um, how to preemptively like think about how to break break things. So like your job as a, as a QA analyst, a lot of times is to go in and find all of the ways that you can you can break a game and make it not function properly. Um, and so you're thinking a lot of times about what what will go wrong. And as a designer, especially if you're a designer that's involved in actually building the game and, and implementing the, the designs into a game engine. Um, it is really, really important to kind of forecast all of the things that uh, could go wrong um, as you're building it. Because um, if you're covering like all of your bases, um, there's going to be fewer bugs on, on the other end, if that makes sense. And so my time in QA really taught me how to be thorough and how to um, think ahead in terms of like, <laughs> does, you know, if I'm working on a multiplayer game, does the way, is the way that I'm implementing this mission or this quest, uh, does it only work in single player? Um, bringing other players into it at the same time, will it break it? You know, working on World of Warcraft for so many years, uh, which is a massively multiplayer game, that's something that we, we encountered all the time, is, is that um, the way that you would maybe build something in a single player game would, would break under the stress of multiple players in, in, a, in an MMO. So um, yeah, my years in QA really, um, I think, made me a, a better designer, um, and hopefully uh, put less work on on the QA department, you know, um, as a designer. Because I, you know, hopefully I was pre QAing my <laughs> my work as I was building it, uh, rather than waiting for someone else to kind of come in and, and at the end and try and catch all the all the problems. That's really great. Um, yeah, there are just so many things that can go wrong um, and and being able to preempt at least some of those can be uh just amazing i i will admit good qa people kind of blow my mind like even mm -hmm. when i you know do development or something it's like send me this bug okay who in their right mind thought that it was a good idea to click that button 37 times as yeah. fast as they could <laughs> but uh no, but players would find that and players would do that yeah. and, you know, things would really break. And so, you know, it's so crucial. So well, I think especially in a, in a free to play environment, like on, on mobile, um, you know, it's, it's very easy for people to put the game down, especially on a phone to just like put it in their pocket, you know, and, and stop playing immediately. 
And um, bugs, you know, if the, if the game is buggy and it's frustrating um, or the user experience is bad, um, you know, those are all opportunities for someone to um, basically quit the game. And so I think even uh, especially in an environment um, like mobile, QA is extremely important. And they are the unsung heroes of, of game development. Um, these, are, these are professional game developers um, who uh, are really good at what they do and essential to the development process. And so uh, whenever I can, I, I, I try to advocate for them, um, you know, in terms of uh, you know, getting higher wages and um, having like more long-term career growth within their their discipline mm -hmm. um, at, at companies. I think um, they are also in 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 terms of game development one of the most uh, taken advantage uh, of disciplines. So um, yeah, shout out to all my my uh, my QA folks <laughs> out there. You guys do amazing work, and uh, you know you're incredibly valuable. Love it. Okay, so. I think one of the, the core things that I wanted to talk about, you know, in this episode is just this concept of live ops and, and long run games. And, and if you look at one of the longest run, most successful games out there, you know, I, I think it's World of Warcraft, right? Um, and, you know, you worked on that for a long time. So I, I just kind of wanted to like, dwell into that, like, just lend us some some wisdom and thoughts on like how did you guys come up with like what the next expansion was going to be maybe, maybe we should leave it there I, i've got so many questions but yeah like uh -huh. you know what was the process for figuring out like what the next expansion was and and what that looked like yeah i mean um so it's a big game um most mmos that um you know are out there try to be big games and so they they require a lot of content um, to basically, you know, keep players going and, and stuff. And so uh, World of Warcraft has a very, uh, a very large um, live ops schedule. I should, uh, now that I'm going to start talking about um, Blizzard specifically, um, just uh, for a frame of reference, I am no longer employed at Blizzard. And I am, <laughs> I am not He's, he's free to say anything. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'm, I, can, I can talk freely about my time there, but, um, you know, this is just you know, my, my opinion and, and my experiences and I'm not speaking for them in any capacity. Um, but yeah, uh, World of Warcraft is a huge game. Um, they, uh, they have uh, really uh, big demands in terms of, you know, a content release schedule as a, as a live game. And so they release uh, box expansions and then they also release uh, large um, content uh, updates um, as well throughout uh, between expansions. Uh, so like a typical World of Warcraft expansion will have a box release, uh, which will be like the, the biggest content update for that cycle. And then there will probably be um, two to three um, major content uh, patches, which would be like a, like the size of um, a large DLC, you know, in, in other uh, games. And then you're also gonna have a lot of incremental patches between those as well. Some of which would be like bug fixing, um, you know, minor content updates, system tweaks, uh, you know, things like that. Um, in terms of like the, the process for like planning these things out, they're, they're planned out years in advance. Um, so, uh, you know, while, on a, on, while a team is working on, um, you know, uh, some of the content patches, like an expansion is usually already under development. 
Um, so you have a team working on a live product and on the expansion um, at the same time. And World of Warcraft is a it's, a, it's a really big game. It's a big team of developers. Um, you know, it's been a little bit since I worked on World of Warcraft, but um, I think it's it's around 300 developers uh, just for the just for that game alone. So, um, you know, when I joined, it was, I think, about half that. But, uh, you know, as the game has gone on, it, it takes more and more um, people to, to make it and to make it to the the uh, the level of quality that it, it needs to be to continue to you know maintain its its spot in the in the MMO ecosystem right like the bar always gets raised over time you know our standards always go up they don't really go down so um, yeah it's a it's a huge endeavor so you know obviously with the World of Warcraft the entire goal of the game is to have people you know keep their subscription and hopefully you know buy the the box upgrade or whatnot. Um, and so, you know, the longer that they're around, the, the more revenue that you make. Um, how do you, like, I would imagine that with World of Warcraft, there are people that play vastly different. Like, you know, you probably got your really hardcore people that raid 12 plus hours a week. And then you've probably got your casual people that, you know, maybe buy the expansion pack and like play for a month or so just like you know through some content and stuff like and then probably everyone in between and then you've got other people that maybe like really like pvp or whatnot like how do you think about designing the game so that it's actually fun for all those different mm -hmm. people and play styles i mean that's uh yeah any any um any mmo uh, i think has has that that challenge um there's uh you know when you're, when you're creating something that's it's basically a big virtual world for people to uh, spend as much time as possible in um you you're going to want to attract uh, a, a diverse array of of players right um and some some things motivate players uh um you know so some things motivate certain players and, and other things motivate uh you know other types of players and so this is something that I think World of Warcraft over the long run um, has done pretty well. Um, you know, you've got the the hardcore segment of players that um, you know are really into raiding at the highest levels and um, are, are very competitive in terms of like you know downing raid bosses you know first um, <laughs> you know globally and and stuff like that. Um, you have a hardcore PvP community as well um, that is very much into player versus player content. Um, and then you've got a lot of, of people who were who were there for the quests and the, the storylines, um, or even just there for their guilds, the, the social uh, relationships that, that they have, um, you know, with other players. And so, um, you know, for an MMO, uh, especially to be successful, it needs to do all of those things well, um, and it needs to allow people to have like that vertical um, advancement, um, you know, in terms of player power. Uh, as we typically call it, but then also have a great deal of like uh, horizontal um, progression as well. And in terms of, uh, you know, goals that players can do that may not uh, necessarily give them player power, but still keep them invested in the game. Um, a, a common example of that would be like housing, for example. Uh, World of Warcraft, unfortunately, does not have housing, but 
Um, a lot of other MMOs have implemented it very well. And it's one of those systems that um, adds value to a game, but um, doesn't necessarily uh, result in uh, you know, player power advancement. Although um, there are some examples that do, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I come from a heavily like more of a, a mobile free to play uh, perspective, although I've played a lot of WoW. Um, <clears throat> I, I think one thing that I've heard, uh, just like in pro products in general, is that you know a lot of times if you can get a user to a kind of an aha moment, like I know with Twitter, their aha moment is like once you follow ten or twenty people or something, and so they they really started scaling once they changed their first time user experience to try to get you to like follow those 10 people or whatever um i'm curious like you know is there some sort of like aha moment in wow where it's like hey once a player actually joins a guild you know we see that they're going to actually stick around for 12 more months versus you know three months or something like that or do you guys not get into that level of uh you know analysis no, um, we certainly do. Uh, unfortunately, I'm, I've, I've been more on the creative and, and content <laughs> side of things. Um, we do have, you know, an analytics department and um, we have people who are, um, you know, you know, user experience specialists and uh, data, data analysts who, who go in and look at all of that kind of stuff and, um, and then give us, you know, amazing uh, PowerPoint presentations <laughs> that, uh, wow. you know, help us, you know, find things to focus on. But, um, you know, kind of uh, just speaking from personal experience, I think in an MMO, those aha moments can come in a variety of ways because mm -hmm. you have different types of players that are, are playing these games. And so, you know, and that aha moment for, for a player might be the first time they ever down a raid boss, you know, in their, in their first raid. Or for another player, it might be the first time they group up with someone and meet someone socially in the game. Um, or it could be someone's first PvP battleground. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think it really va varies based on the player. And um, when you're creating like a large um, online uh, gaming like ecosystem, I think that you need to kind of have all of these these player archetypes um, in mind as you're as you're creating content and um, game systems for them to interact with. Mm. That's really great. Yeah, I was just genuinely curious because I'd never seen anything, but I was like, I wonder if you know they figure out. And then they're like, hey, Kurt, help us design a quest to get you to join a, a <laughs> yeah. guild or something like that. No, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, they are. So in my experience, World of Warcraft was never a UX driven, um, you know, design uh, uh, frame. Like, how do I put it? They were, you, it was never like a, a UX driven um, development, uh, like, having a hard time finding the words for this like uh team they, they, they blizzard has always kind of been um creatively driven um in terms of yep. what they what they what they create and only recently have we really gotten into like really leveraging uh ux um specialists and um analytics to help us, um, you know, create um, better game experiences. So it's kind of always been on like the, you know, what drives Blizzard design is like a really big <laughs> fantasy and, you know, like a really awesome, like epic moment or experience, right? And yeah. um, 
but the UX side of things um, is really important. Uh, you know, we we worked on um, a new player experience in the in the uh, Shadowlands um, expansion. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that one. And uh, we used a lot of, of UX playtesting um, and and research to develop that new player experience um, called Exiles Reach. And so we we looked at um, you know a lot of data in terms of what are new players, um, you know, focusing on, um, you know, are these, these older systems that we've taken for granted for a long time, like, like killing something and looting it. Um, is that like intuitive for a brand new player, you know, who's never played world of Warcraft before. And so we, we really came, um, at it with fresh eyes because we wanted to build a, a true, um, uh, you know, new player experience in world of Warcraft from the ground up. And, I think largely it was successful and um, it, it is definitely, I think, um, informing a lot of uh, our de the design process there going forward. Um, but, you know, traditionally speaking, um, you know, <laughs> it's been more of like creatively driven, I guess. Yeah. That makes sense. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I was recently uh, playing Conan Exiles with a few uh -huh. yeah. buddies and we haven't played that in a long time and, and they read a lot of stuff, but one of the things that they did is they, um, they basically added quests and they're pretty basic quests, but um, it like guides you to try different things in the game that, you know, like I probably wouldn't have ever tried farming mm -hmm. had they not like had a little quest to like make me do a little bit of farming. And it actually turned out to be like very interesting, but, you know, I was thinking about world of Warcraft and I was like, how long did I play that game you know, not realizing that you could, you know, create chains of like skills that you can put together with like your, the emos or whatever it's called. Um, oh, the macros. Yeah. Macros. There we go. Right. Um, and you know, different things like that, where you weren't really kind of got it into it, but, um, it's fascinating, but anyways, let's get back to the creative side a little bit. Um, you did a lot of stuff with quest design. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I'm curious, like, what was your process or your approach to coming up with quests? Because, okay, in World of Warcraft, there's, you know, thousands of quests and a lot of them are probably going to seem like they're kind of the same. And it's the same thing in a lot of, you know, long run games. It's like, even if it's a slightly different flavor of the core loop, it's like still kind of the same. So how do you, you know, keep it fresh and interesting while still giving, I guess, more of the same, but different maybe as a way to phrase it. But yeah, yeah, what was your what was your process to coming up with you know really great quests? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I'd kind of preface preface it a little bit um, with kind of an explanation of why quests are the way they are in, in World of Warcraft. So, um, if you look at like you know, man, this game has been out for almost twenty years now. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the nearly two decades of, of World of Warcraft content, the the actual quest mechanics haven't changed a whole lot over the years. Um, the still the the basic gameplay loop is, is still largely the same. You know, uh, you kill uh, you know uh, hostile creatures, uh, you loot them for for different types of um, you know items, and uh, you you rinse and repeat. And the the quest objectives um, can are, are pretty simple. You know, ranging from go kill a thing to um, kill, kill it and collect something from it. Uh, you know, like, like loot the, you know, the, the bear skins off of grizzly bears, you know, or something. Um, it can be like, go collect, um, 
you know, objects off of the ground, like, like herbs or like loot that's inside of chests, um, really basic, simple interactions that get kind of recycled over and over again. And the reason that, um, you know, that part hasn't really changed is because those are proven mechanics. Like the, those are, are ways uh, that the player can interact with the world that um, are intuitive, that they've learned through previous gameplay. Um, and that have uh, a lot of potential for um, being reused uh, and reskinned with different narratives and different visual presentation and, and stuff like that. Um, so we, we kind of call those like the bread and butter uh, quests, <laughs> right? Like they're the, the, the tried and true, uh, yep. you know, quest mechanics. And the, what a good quest designer will do is they'll leverage those, those mechanics that players are familiar with but they will um, they will repackage them in new and interesting ways that um, tell a different story um, through characters and um, and quest text, or um, that you know use interesting um, you know spell visuals or um, an item that they give the player that has like a unique um, ability on it to just kind of change things up um, ever so slightly. Um, and usually you don't have to change things up a whole lot to um, make it feel fresh and interesting. I don't remember um, where I learned this design principle. I read it somewhere. Um, maybe you've, you've, uh, maybe you're familiar with it, but it's kind of like this idea that if you're going to create um, something that's brand new, you still want like 85% of it to be familiar to the player and only 15% of it is, is actually like novel. Um, so you'll see this a lot in like science fiction movies and, and stuff like that, where instead of like, you know, a science fiction film or, or book um, going out and, um, you know, making everything so wildly different that, that people and the audience can't really grasp what's going on, like you'll still have cars in Blade Runner <laughs> or you'll still you'll still have, uh, you know, um, things that are familiar. And then it's that, that extra 15% uh, that is just a little bit different that makes it feel brand new. And quest design um, in World of Warcraft and, and in other, other games is, uh, it's very much the same way. Um, you, you, you want players to um, understand the mechanics that they're, that they're being asked to, um, you know, work with in terms of uh, the game, but you want to present it to them in a way that is, is new and exciting and, and fresh. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the job of, of a quest designer. Let's see. Yeah. It, it's almost like I've heard that. let's say you're, you're making an entirely new game on, and you're creating like an alien world or something like that. Um, it's better for you to reuse common concepts. Like uh, I've heard of this in like the merge games that have been kind of blowing out players. So like some of the merge games, the, the merge chains are like very illogical. Like you put two apples together and they become a wrench. Now, I don't think mm -hmm. they're that bad, but as an example, right, right. versus like, you know, if you put together two knives and it becomes a short sword and two short swords becomes like a long sword or something like just something a little bit more realistic or, or your, your mind can kind of follow it because it's 
based within real world knowledge that you already have, you can rather readily translate that. And then you stay in the flow of the game rather than having to use that to absorb this additional knowledge and stuff that you're thinking about. Yeah. Um, so I guess with that in mind, um, that 15%, like what's your process for coming up with, you know, what's interesting yeah. and creative? Like, do you talk to players? Do you play the game? Do you just sit and think and, and Kurt has magical ideas? Is it, you know, working together with coworkers or, yeah. It's, you know, it's all, all of those things. Um, it really, a lot of it depends on um, what your, your assignment is uh, on the game. So, um, you know, as a quest designer on World of Warcraft, um, it, you know, there could be assignments where I was given like a whole zone to, to work on and I need to come up with all the stories and characters in the zone. Maybe the zone has a certain theme um, mm. that is there and there's maybe a couple of bullet points of like a, a mainline narrative that um, need to be addressed, but I need to kind of go in and fill the blanks. And so um, you know, I might look at my environment, like, what is the environment like here? Is this a desert? Is it a forest? Is it a jungle? You know, what kinds of, um, you know, things uh, would make sense here intuitively? Like, what's the fantasy of adventuring in a desert? What's the, the fantasy of, um, you know, uh, going through like a, a swamp or, or something like that? And so leveraging player fantasy um, is, is something I always try to do. You know, think of like uh, if I'm in a, a jungle, my mind immediately goes to Indiana Jones, you know, and and Jumanji and and, and stuff like that. And so, really, kind of leveraging, you know, um, those those fantasies is is a good way to go. Um, another thing that's important is kind of like knowing where this quest takes place in the overall uh, main main narrative of a game. So uh, what characters has the player interacted with before this point that maybe we want to bring back? Um, what information do they have in the plot uh, you know, right now? Um, are there opportunities where I can um, kind of play with, play with narrative themes um, that they've encountered in, in the main storyline here or flesh them out, like show a different side of a villain, right? So. Maybe if there's a, a storyline where like this villain has been, um, you know, uh, and their band of robbers have been marauding towns and you reach a, you know, a, a town halfway through the quest line where they actually have been helped by that villain, right? Um, and they show a different side of this character or of this, this narrative that, um, you know, th those are really interesting things that you can do to, to hook players um, into it. So you have a lot of different levers to pull. It's about, knowing which one is right for for what you're working on so it's it's a yeah. super super broad topic <laughs> i could i could we could do a whole you know like series on you know just you know all the different um you know ways that quest designers and mission designers um kind of go about creating creating content yeah do you try to you know, within a particular zone like do you try to cater to a particular player's like I don't know, like take Shadowlands, you've got the mm -hmm. uh, Ravendreth, right? Um, you know, do you try to design that in such a way so that a certain player is going to like really like that one, but they might not like Maldraxxus yeah. for whatever reason? Yeah, I think with, with Shadowlands specifically, so um, for anybody who's not super familiar with Shadowlands, um, 
we kind of had like these four um, main zones that all kind of had a different fantasy to them and a different group of people um, living in them. And um, when we were designing it, we very much kind of had an idea that maybe some people would um, gravitate more towards uh, the Night Fae or some would, you know, uh, gravitate more towards the Kyrian, um, you know, factions. And so each of those zones was developed with a specific um, visual and narrative fantasy in mind. Um, and then we created a game system um, around that known as the Covenant system. Um, and that kind of allowed players to choose which one they wanted to further align with and um, get more, um, you know, narrative content and, and stuff out of. So um, in, in that specific case, like we, we definitely uh, put a lot of thought into um, kind of like trying to create um, each zone in, in a really unique way that, that certain players would, would gravitate towards. Um, but, you know, in past expansions and, and uh, other, other zones, um, it really has a lot to do with the main story, the theme of the expansion, um, mm. the, the narrative themes, the visual themes that we're working with. And um, we just try to work within those, um, like those, those frameworks to um, create, you know, the most compelling uh, content that we can. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so for a lot of games, um, especially in today's age, you know, live ops has really become uh, a key essential to keeping players around because if you're not giving me something new and interesting to come back to and, and surprise me with a little bit every single day, I'm probably going to turn and go to a game that does give me that. Um, and, you know, I want to go to those big concerts in Fortnite because it's something that my friends are going to and something I can talk about and stuff. Uh, but anyways, with, within the context of live ops, you know, oftentimes you'll have, daily missions or weekly quests or, or whatever. And some of those, you know, will often repeat or repeat with slightly different flavors and stuff. Um, I'm curious, and I don't know if you were ever involved in it, but is there a difference between designing just like regular one-time quests and designing say daily quests and mm -hmm. weekly quests uh, within the context of it? Because a player is going to do that daily quest over and over and over and over again versus, okay, I, maybe I can give them an annoying quest that they have to do one time, but they don't have to like keep doing that. So are, is there a conscious decision or like a difference of a mindset of how you approach those daily quests versus like a standard one, because you know, the player is going to have to do this thing multiple times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so replayability becomes a really important um, when you're getting into uh, quests that um, well, are, are replayable. Um, so, you know, you don't want players to get to a point where uh, they feel bored um, being asked to do um, the same quest over and over again. Um, one of the things that I usually look at when I'm looking at replay replayable um, content is um, does, does it have like an intrinsic fun factor that makes, uh, makes it enjoyable um, to do, right? Uh, um, a lot of the quests that I prefer or types of missions that I prefer to um, use in a replayable context are, are uh, quests that um, are a little bit different than the, the normal bread and butter stuff we talked about earlier. So stuff maybe involving piloting a vehicle um, or um, you know, uh, transforming into like a, a magical creature uh, of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and also like playing with the, the tropes uh, too. Like I made a, a world quest um, 
in Shadowlands uh, where you turn into a moth and you can't, uh, you have to, you're asked to go collect these things in an area, but you don't have any combat abilities. You just have abilities to evade, um, you know, uh, combat. And so it, it, it basically takes the core game loop of, core game loop of World of Warcraft and it turns it on its head for a few minutes where instead of like going out and trying to um, attack creatures and, and overpower them with your abilities, you're actually, um, you're trying to uh, avoid them and uh, not get, get killed by them. And so yeah. uh, things like that, um, you know, in small, small spurts um, can be fun in a replayable context. Um, a lot of the stuff you learn through experience too, um, you know, whatever your game you're working on and, you know, once it goes live, and you're getting that feedback from from players in terms of what's working and what's not, um, you get a feel for the types of content that work best in your game in a replayable way, um, and the the type of content that's better in like kind of a one off uh, format. So, so in that moth example, um, you mentioned an intrinsic fun factor. So, so what is the intrinsic fun factor in that example? Yeah, I think that. Um, so one of, one, one of the things that makes those types of um, gameplay moments fun is the novelty. It's, it's, so it's, it's different than um, what you're, you're used to engaging with. This is something that um, you know, changes the way that you interact with the game in a, in a, in a novel or new, new way. Um, the, other, the other things too is like, um, it has to be fun to control, like so, um, you know, there, this goes back to, I guess, like the three, I've heard it called the three C's before, but like, um, uh, you know, character, uh, control and, uh, camera. Right. And so these are kind of like the, the, the three fundamental, um, areas that a, a player is going to interface or interact with the game. And so each of those things needs to be intuitive and fun and not a, a point of frustration. So when you when you're getting into like building intrinsic fun um, into like a you know a game um, that core loop of whatever whatever you're being asked to do should feel good to control it should feel rewarding um, and it uh, should should feel like um, like it's fulfilling a fantasy uh, you know for the the player and if you can kind of do all of those things well um, then it's something that should be replayable. I, I look at um, like Diablo as having one of like the most simple but like effective core game loops um, mm -hmm. of, of anything, which is like <laughs> you you run up to stuff and you know there's a lot of monsters, you run up to them, you explode them, and then you pick up the pinata like loot that is <laughs> all over the ground and, and you rinse and repeat. And for some reason, you know, it never, when it's done well, it, it never gets old. Like, you know, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's plenty of Diablo clone games out there um, that people are, are, are playing a lot of because that, that, that loop is intrinsically rewarding. So. Love it. Um, cool. Uh, two final questions on the uh, replayable quest, because I think this is actually something that a lot of people in live ops are, are thinking about how to approach. Um, how do you test if a replayable quest is fun? Now, I, I don't know what sort of tools and platforms you had at Blizzard. Like if you could just create that moth quest and like it would just like work without dev because that would be super cool and then you could test it but if it did require dev like 
I have personally found there's a difference between like some numbers and things that I put down on a spreadsheet that look cool and sound good and look good. But when you actually like put it into the game and play it, it can be very underwhelming. Um, so I, I'm curious, like, is there a way that doesn't require a ton of like dev effort um, in certain cases to figure out if this is going to be fun, both on the first playthrough, but also on the hundredth playthrough, or do you literally actually have to play it a hundred times and, and build it out fully? Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is something that um, you, you develop an intuition for like over time as you're, as you're making games and releasing them and, and getting feedback um, from players and, and stuff like that. And also from playing, playing a lot of games, um, you know, you always can kind of fall back on uh, like the, the games that you keep gravitating towards, you know, and, and playing over and over again. And if you, if you really kind of take a critical eye to it, you can start to dissect it, the components involved in, in that core game loop and, and why they're, they're so rewarding. Um, but uh, in terms of, you know, World of Warcraft specifically, um, you know, there wasn't anything special uh, that we would, we would do. We, I think the biggest thing is just play testing your work um, and getting other people to play test it and listening to feedback and um, incorporating uh, that feedback into future iterations. I'm a big proponent of uh, iterative design. Um, I think that starting small and expanding out through through iteration in terms of game scope is is a a really good way of um, designing for fun um, because you're you're basically starting with the the essential components and finding the fun in the essentials before moving um, outwards. Um, you know, some games uh, and game designers make the mistake of adding breadth uh, to a game or complexity to a game too quickly. I think. And um, something that I think Blizzard has always done well it, um, in, in their game design process is finding that finding the fun of, of that, that core game loop uh, early and yeah. then building, building outwards uh, from there. So I think that's the most important thing. I love it. Well, cool. So after World of Warcraft, you've kind of shifted into doing some mobile development and stuff. So yeah. I'm curious, like, how is that different and, and are there any parts of it that are kind of the same in terms of like how you approach, you know, game design between, you know, a mobile game and a, a huge MMO like World of Warcraft? Yeah, you know, um, mobile is, is, is such a huge topic. Um, so aside from, you know, just being this, this gigantic platform uh, for, for games that, um, you know, you can where you can have all sorts of different types of games on it and, and stuff like that and you know um the inherent limitations in, in the device you know in terms of you know being designed for touchscreen um you know control and, and and things like that um it's also like a different like ecosystem in terms of um monetization models and stuff too so uh it's you know the move from yeah, from like computer games um, to to mobile for me was was really eye opening, um, and the reason I wanted to do it um, even at Blizzard, I I left World of Warcraft to work on a um, an unannounced uh, mobile project uh, for a while. Um, the reason I wanted to do it is just because uh, you know it's such a huge um, you know uh, market uh, right now. Mobile games uh, you know create more 
revenue per year than PC and console combined. And I think that um, from one side, you can look at it and say like, oh, there's a lot of like monetization potential in mobile and you know that's really attractive. But for me as a designer, as, as a creative, what's attractive to me is the player base. And so when I look at mobile, I see a new, a new market of players that maybe um, haven't uh, you know, played my, my other games yet and I can, I can introduce them to, uh, you know, in, in the case of when I was working at Blizzard on, on a mobile project, introduce them to Blizzard games for the very first time. I mean, that, that's really exciting. Um, and also, you know, uh, you know, going into Amazon, uh, you know, right now, and, you know, with, with Blizzard, like these are, these are big companies with a lot of resources. And so, um, you know, you can, you can make, you know, the idea of making a AAA mobile game is, is really, um, you know, I think enticing to me as a developer to like take the quality at, uh, that we that we associate with console and PC and show that it can be done in in a on, on the mobile platform to a high level. Um, I think is very exciting, and some companies are already doing it now too. Like I look at uh, Miyoho and and their games, yep. and uh, you know Genshin Impact um, in particular. Blew my mind. It blew my it, mind. I was like. It's, you know, Genshin Impact uh, is, is, it sets the bar for me personally in terms of what a AAA uh, mobile experience can be like. And, um, you know, I think it proved to a lot of people that, that mobile can be, you know, that it can be a hardcore um, AAA, you know, high quality gaming platform. And, um, you know, one that is, that is accessible and, and portable and um, you know that that uh, you know just has a lot of like unique potential that that consoles and, and PCs don't. So I definitely view mobile as kind of like the future of of gaming. Um, and I also I envision a world where 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 basically like your mobile is your one device, and like maybe you go home and you dock your phone like a switch, and then you know you're playing you know uh, you know like console games on it, you know on a on a high def TV. Or um, you go and you you plug it into a, a dock at, at work, and you know it's your computer, and you're you're using a keyboard and a and a monitor with it, right? So like I think we'll eventually get to like the the one device you know um, uh, setup where our one device does does everything, and in that case, it's going to be a mobile device. It's gonna it's probably going to be your phone too if we. We still communicate with each other that way. It's not telepathic yet, <laughs> but um, yeah. So just tons of potential there, and a lot of learning. You know, I still consider myself someone who's learning a lot about um, mobile development and um, you know things like uh, KPI and, and you know monetization strategies and, and stuff like that. But as a developer, you know what really motivates me is um, just like this huge untapped market of of people who can enjoy enjoy the game, and uh, so yeah, it's really it's really exciting. Um, and games like Genshin Impact, you, a lot of people haven't played Diablo Immortal yet. Um, Diablo Immortal is fantastic. Um, it will it will make a lot of people very happy. Um, and you know all you know the other countless games that are in development at, at different studios. I think we're entering a new generation of mobile games where um, you know. The, the quality bar is going to be very high and it's, yeah. it's, it's incredibly exciting. That is. Um, do you, 
I mean, thinking about, you know, mobile and stuff like that, historically, um, like I think about Clash Royale um, mm-hmm. and and I was I quit playing that game, but I, I played it for a long time because I really like the like the PvP aspect of it. And at one point in time, this is probably like four years in, I had the relationship with the guild and they were probably a big reason like why I stayed there and played. Um, but it, it came out and I swear nearly everyone in the guild just admitted that like they only play Clash Royale when they're like pooping on the toilet or something. It's like, <laughs> this is my pooping game. And it's like perfectly designed for that. It's like a three minute play or whatever. Um, yeah. And I, I just thought that was, you know, so fascinating. Um, and you think of like Candy Crush and a big portion of their players like came out um yeah I, I play candy crush when i'm you know on the train going into work like in london or whatnot um, and actually a big reason why candy crush won over a lot of the other games is candy crush supported the offline play that would still work when they're underground you know in london riding the train and stuff like that um so it's just fascinating but i guess the question i'm getting at do you as you approach like mobile design, do you think about like people's play sessions and, and how long things should be like, yeah. um, you know, Genshin Impact or, or Wild Rift even, you know, for, for League of Legends, it's a much longer play session to like play a game on Wild Rift than that like, you know, three minute game of Clash Royale. And like, is that something that you consciously have to think of as a game designer and kind of try to Hey, let's have them be able to complete this quest at this point in time. So if they want to keep going, they can, but if they want to stop, it's a good, you know, natural stopping point. Yeah. I think, um, every game designer, no matter um, what game you're working on, you should, you should think in terms of play session length, um, and understand that, um, you know, I, this is the buzzword for, for this episode of your, your podcast, but, uh, core gameplay loop, right? Like you, you, you need to know what your core gameplay loop is. And you need to know how, how long it takes and you need to make sure that your play session, um, you, you design the content around play section length that, um, you know, accommodates that, that core gameplay loop and, you know, the types of players that you're, um, that you're targeting. So uh, for mobile, like a, um, a play session length is probably in most cases going to look different than it, than it does on the PC. And so, um, you're right that like Genshin Impact, um, you know, you can sit down and play it for a long time, like you would a console game or a PC game. But it is actually quite easy that, to hop in and hop out. And if you look at like the way that they design objectives in the world, they can yep. be completed um, fairly quickly um, mm-hmm. in, in most cases. I think the dungeons are the ones that take like a little bit um, longer to complete. Um, but those are kind of there off to the side. And when you feel like you have time, you can go and do a dungeon. Otherwise you can explore the world and, um, and uh, or go gather resources and, and stuff like that. So I think Genshin's done a good job of uh, accommodating short and uh, long, longer play sessions. But um, every, every game, to answer your question directly, every game designer should be thinking about uh, play session like for whatever it is that they're making. I love that. That's great. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time here. So I do have, I can't believe we're almost out of time already. Uh, I I have one last question, which is the unofficial question of the mastering retention podcast, because it is the mastering retention podcast, of course, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson that you've learned over the years to, you know, keep your players engaged and, and retained and playing the games for longer. Like how do you keep them coming back 
you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, and, you know, loving and engaging in the stuff that you're, you know, creating for them. Yeah. Well, um, man, I don't think there's just one, one secret <laughs> there. The, the two, there's two that come to mind for me. Um, and also I'll, I'll give you like a two for one on, on this one. Um, the first one is, is player trust. Um, you know, one of the big lessons I learned from, from years of working on World of Warcraft is that you need to have the, the trust of your players. And if, if you break the trust, um, it can be hard to get back. And especially when you're dealing with a live um, game and a community, a gaming community, um, that trust needs to be there um, that, that when you release content, they, they trust that it's going to be worth their time or worth their money. Um, and that, um, you know, you're not going to, uh, let them down. So, um, so that's, that's a, a big one. Um, and then I also think that value, um, is, is really important. So anytime you're doing like a free to play, um, monetization, um, setup, um, it's really important in, in my mind that players feel like they're getting a good value for their time and money. Um, so that they don't feel compelled, like I have to buy this thing in order to like, be competitive in the game, you know. Um, I think, and the best free-to-play transactions um, are the ones that where like a player is like happy to give you money, you know. Um, as you know, as someone who plays a lot of free free-to-play games like Path of Exile and uh, Warframe, you know, um, those those both stand out as like times, you know, when I just I feel like, man, I've gotten so much out of this game. Like I just need to throw some money at the developers to keep it going, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that transaction feels so good because not only am I, am I giving money to support this studio that's just making this game that I love, but I'm also getting something back for it at the same time, you know, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's like, uh, you know, in the form of in-game currency or items or in Path of Exile, like, you know, banking uh, slots and, and stuff like that. Like, yeah. Um, you know, it, it feels like a win-win um, situation. And if you can make your transactions feel win-win, um, I think you're in a really good place to um, do both of those things, which is to offer value and to build trust. So. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Kurt. This has been a real pleasure. Um, if people do have any like questions or follow-up, like, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of uh, make it a point to stay off of uh, social media and, and stuff like that. But well I, done. I am active on, on LinkedIn. Um, it's the kind of like the one site where, um, you know, I'm, I'm there, you know, pretty much every day uh, checking in. Um, I just, it's a great way to stay um, in touch with like, uh, you know, the gaming community and other developers and and, and stuff like that. So um, if you're on LinkedIn, feel free to send me a request. I'll, I'll be happy to accept. And um, yeah, thank you for, for having me on here. I love talking game design. Um, it's, you know, my, my favorite, uh, my favorite subject. <laughs> and so I'm um, always happy to talk about it. And, and yeah, so thank you very much.